This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. As far back as I can remember, I have collected odd things. When I was about five years old, whenever anyone gave me a gift of candy, rather than consume it immediately like my younger brother always did, I secretly hid it away in an old pocketbook my mother had given me for when I was playing dress-up. No one knew that I didn't eat the candy, and after several months, I had amassed quite a collection of lollipops and sweet tarts and lifesavers, and my very favorite candy of all, Nico wafers. When I was sure that no one would catch me, I would close my bedroom door, remove the pocketbook from its hiding place, and carefully remove all of the candy. Then, as the reds and yellows of the lollipop shimmered and sparkled like the stars in my eyes, I would lovingly admire my covert collection. Then I would gingerly organize it, and when I was finished mentally cataloging my treasure, I would carefully put it all back and once again hide it away. Needless to say, I was very proud and awed by my secret stash. One day, very mysteriously, my pocketbook disappeared. It simply vanished into thin air. I didn't know if my mother found my candy collection and threw it away, or if she accidentally gave the bag to Goodwill. At the time, I was too afraid to ask, as I was fearful of being confronted with my strange pack-rat-like pack behavior. But at that moment, my heart was broken. It was only 30 years later that I finally asked my mother about my lost pocketbook full of candy, and she had absolutely no recollection of it at all. I will never, ever know what happened to my hidden treasure. I still collect odd things, but thankfully they are objects that are more useful. Now I feel blissfully happy when I open up my kitchen closet and see my shelves bountifully stocked with things like paper towels, and tissue boxes, and toilet paper. I fearfully quip that my house is the place to go if there ever was another big blackout or a war, as I have enough household rations to last a minimum of six months. I also have cases of canned cat and dog food for my furry family, and of course, just in case, several gallon-sized plastic jugs of water. It makes me happy to see all these things, I admire them in the same way I long ago admired my secret candy, and whenever I open my closet door, I smile. I think these humble products are rather beautiful in their simplicity, the perfectly round rolls of winter white paper and the iconic boxes, and their loveliness, at least to me, is as real as their usefulness. In analyzing my strange desire to have a supply of household products that could easily serve an extended family of ten or more in what is actually a household of one, I have considered that it is more than just happiness that fuels my need for this abundance. 
Initially, I thought these products produced a profound sense of security and self-sufficiency, but now I feel that it goes even deeper than that. They make me feel safe. In Paola Antonelli's book, Safe, Design Takes on Risk, which is also a catalog of the marvelous exhibit she curated at the Museum of Modern Art, she writes, Safety is an instinctive need that has guided human choices throughout history. Like love, it is a universal feeling, and as such has inspired endless analytical thinking and motivated science, literature, and art. On our sleeves, we wear not only our hearts, but also big red panic buttons. As often happens with basic tenets of human nature, no definition of safety can be more powerful than the one that, that each of us carries inside. In interest of discourse, however, at least one interpretation can prove useful. The Maslow hierarchy of needs, for example, is a five-layer model of psychological behavior developed around the middle of the 20th century. It places the need for safety second only to the need for food, water, shelter, warmth, and sex. Safety here means security, stability, and freedom from fear. The path of ascension towards self-actualization and the stress on our neediness help us better understand what we are protecting and why. Maslow's hierarchy could be adopted as a basic textbook on human-centered design. In the last 24 hours, much has been written about the very odd gift that Martha Stewart gave out to her audience yesterday on her morning television show. In a day and age when wealthy celebrity hosts are giving away cars and houses and exotic vacation packages, Yesterday, Martha Stewart gave each member of her audience a roll of toilet paper. What a cheapskate, one blogger sneered. But I can't help but feel differently. As I pondered the nature of her handout, I couldn't help but wonder if she, like me, found comfort in having more than you need, ensuring that you never run the risk of running out. I wondered if she, like me, felt that having an abundance of something helped her feel safer in a world of emotional and physical danger. In fact, the only criticism that I could offer at her unusual audience gift was not in the quality, but rather in the quantity. I am convinced that of all people, Martha must know that rather than give a gift of a single roll of toilet paper, a much, much better gift would have been a 12-pack, or a pack of 36, or even an entire case. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the woman whose compelling quote I just shared with you in my monologue, Paola Antonelli. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Paola Antonelli joined the Museum of Modern Art in 1994 and is a curator in the Department of Architecture and Design. There, she has curated highly acclaimed shows, including Mutant Materials and Contemporary Design, Works Fears, Humble Masterpieces, Everyday Marvels of Design, and most recently, Safe, Designer Takes on Risk. The exhibit included over 300 products and prototypes that address the physical, psychological, and ideological aspects of safety. Paula is also the recipient of a master's degree in architecture, and she has curated many architecture and design exhibits in Italy, France, and Japan. Paola was recently rated one of the top 100 most powerful people in the world of art by Art Review, 
and just last Monday, it was announced that Paula had won a coveted Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum Design Award. Congratulations and welcome, Paula. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, Debbie. So great to have you here on the show. I'm um, just happy to be sharing manias and obsessions with you. Of <laughs> <laughs> which I have many. <laughs> so, Paula, you are an architect by training and you're also a writer. So what made you decide to become a curator? That I was really bad at architecture. <laughs> <laughs> I found this quote of yours. Actually, Jen Simon, my, my chief uh, researcher, found this. I love this quote. It says, I got a master's in architecture and had a brief stint as an architect. I discovered I wasn't cut out for it. I don't have much, much patience. Yeah, you a lot exactly of patience it. in architecture. <laughs> And so you were a disaster and you just gave up. So you don't need patience in curating. No, you do need patience, but it's a patience of another kind. See, the problem with architecture is that before you get to build a building, decades, right? When you get to build a building, five years before it's done. I just couldn't handle it. You know, I'm just talking about this kind of method in time. I just don't have that. At least an exhibition happens in a year and a half, two years, an article happens in four months. I mean, there's much more. A lecture happens right away. So there's, you see the fruits of your work um, in the world relatively fast. So when you went to school, did you intend to become an architect upon graduating, or was that just something that you wanted for your own education? Frankly, I had no clue. Um, before moving to architecture, I did two years of economics. So that gives you an idea of wow. what a strong mission I had in my life. I really was, was trying different things. An architectural school in Italy where I went was a school for anybody who didn't really know what to do but wanted to kind of vaguely be in the arts. How different so we, from we the 15,000 students. How many? 15,000, only in Milan, only in architecture. That gives you an idea. $400 a year, public school. Oh. And uh, I think that uh, maybe... 5% would graduate, and of that 5%, even less of a percentage would become real architects. So I wasn't the 5%, but not in the 0.5%. Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it, but it was perfect because it gives you the kind of training that you need to have a strong theoretical background. Of course, we, we would never get to really draw at school. We would do that at home. And also, it teaches you something about life because um, the, you had to motivate yourself in order to keep going to that um, amazingly crowded, messy, kind of dirty, rickety, and very fascinating school day after day. Mm -hmm. Now, did you, did you always have the sense that you wanted to do something creative and that seemed like the best place to at least get started? I was doing a lot of creative things already. I think if when people ask me, I say that I've never made a decision in my life, mm. that in a way things happen to me, but we know very well that that's not completely true. You have to kind of follow the waves, even if the waves hit you first. And so, uh, But I, I would say that it, uh, it all flew in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Now, what is, your, what is your first memory? What is your first memory of a creative experience that you had? What was, when you were a little girl, what was the first thing you remember doing that was creative? The first thing, I used to always draw, you know, I would take all of these magazines, you know, like Hello Magazine, People Magazine that I would found, and I would draw little crowns on top of every woman's head. <laughs> <laughs> Not the men, just the women. That's what I remember, little crowns. Everybody was a princess. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Um, now, you've been at MoMA for 12 years. Before that, you were, were you living in uh, California and, and teaching? Yeah, you were well, at UCLA. I was living in Milan first, and then I started teaching at UCLA quarters. I would spend about four months, five months a year in California and the rest of the time in Milan. So I was on staff as an editor 
first at Dalmus Magazine and then at Abitare. And when I was in Los Angeles, I would send back stories from the other side of the world. And at that point, it was when you started to get an interest in curating. What was the very first uh, exhibit that you curated? Actually, the very first that I curated by myself, I, mean, I was hired to, to put together an exhibition that somebody else had curated at the Triennale, but the first one that I put together was an exhibition on the history of Domus. Domus is this architecture uh-huh. and design magazine that was founded the same year as MoMA in 1929, okay. and it has a beautiful history. So my first job at Domus was to make a traveling show of their history with a budget that was risible, but at that time it seemed so much money to me. And, uh, and it was an exhibition that was traveling in Canada and in the United States. So that was the very first show that I curated. And so I can see what you mean by, you know, not necessarily making decisions. It seems like that was a nice sort of natural, serendipitous direction from working at Domus and then curating an exhibit about Domus. Yeah, in Italy it happens very often together. The difference between Italy and the United States is that in the United States usually you have a training <clears throat> in your métier. For instance, many journalists here that work in architecture magazines might have started in another magazine, let's say golfing magazine. They're journalists, professionals. Mm-hmm. In Italy, very often, they're architects. So in Italy, you tend to end up writing about the subject that you've studied in school. Now, what happens is that the quality of the writing is much higher in the United States because the editors are tougher, because, you know, there are some rules that you learn at school, and instead, you know, sometimes... I read my old pieces, and I'm like, oh, my God, couldn't, could I not say that in three words instead of 30? You know, so <laughs> there's a difference of that kind. But the kind of um, uh, diversified application of your knowledge is much more common in Italy. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about how you made the transition from curating for Domus to working at the Museum of Modern Art. We'll do that right after our break. In the meantime, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the curator, Paola Antonelli. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The Voices of Design series brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability, and what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, Chairman, AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit, Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is ahead of the game and, and is what, whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. 
You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. To grow a company, revenues need to grow. To grow revenues, the organization needs to grow. But what does it take to get and keep quality personnel needed to grow a business? Tune into Real People Really Leading with Trish Lambert. Get the inside scoop on how to leverage your best assets to sustained business growth. Trish and her expert guests, from business owners to CEOs to solopreneurs, share the knowledge, experience, and business savvy they have used to lead their teams to continual and persistent business victory. Real People Really Leading broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Real people really leading because knowing is growing. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is curator Paola Antonelli. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Paola, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And, Paola, we do have a caller right away. We have Rich from San Diego. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Paola. Hi. Uh, it's great to uh, have you on the show and uh, to get to hear kind of your outlook on life. And uh, I am a student with a year left in uh, graphic design. But I'm also doing graphic design right now in an architecture firm in San Diego. And I would love to uh, advance into a career where I'm kind of, you know, doing something, I guess, not maybe similar, exactly similar to you, but uh, something like that where uh, I'm bridging, you know, architecture with graphic design. And I'd love to do, like, you know, the really nice coffee table books from outside Natasha and her work for somebody like Domus someday. But uh, having said that, those are obvious places that I kind of see uh, do you have any suggestions of where else I might like try to pursue a career uh, in design where I get to kind of have the crossover in those disciplines? You know, the crossover of disciplines, there are, um, you, you can think, you know, the institutions like museums, uh, especially now I'm, th- I'm thinking of, of a place like the Walker Art Center, become really um, generators for great design. And, you know, the Walker Art Center comes to mind uh, first because they really kind of revolutionized, revolutionized graphic design. Yes. That little place, but you know, graphic design is so encompassing and so enormous that you could end up everywhere from uh, designing interfaces for a bank uh, for their ATM machines, all the way to doing signage for airports, all the way to doing catalogs and books. And since it's such a gigantic field, I think that one of the most important things is to figure out what you like most. Like, do you like co- collaborating with architects, for instance? Yes, no. If no, move elsewhere. Do you praise? variety, the variety of projects over money. You know, and there are so many considerations to be made. I would um, try to uh, try to take, depending on how, whether you can do it or not, but I would try internships at different places that seem interesting, and then I would pick and choose. You okay. know what I'm saying? Because it truly is so big. Uh, you could even go on the website for the AIGA, for the American Institute of Graphic Artists, and see they have a lot of, of, really, um, uh, of really practical advice as well 
as uh, a review of salaries and also um, kind of a breakdown of possible careers in graphic design that you can have. Wonderful. Well, Rich, thank you so much for calling. Bye. Thank you. Bye. So, Paula, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the work that you do at MoMA. You've been there now for 12 years, and you've curated some of the most popular shows that the museum has had. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you go about planning an exhibition for the museum? Oh, yeah. It's, um, it's a lot of fun, actually. It's one of my favorite things. Well, first of all, you have the idea. And ideas, uh, and I usually say that ideas are a dollar a pound. It's easy <laughs> to have ideas, and the tough thing is to make them happen. You know, you have to pick the right idea, and then you have to carry it through. When you have the idea, you present it to an, an exhibitions committee. I'm part of it, and there's a discussion on whether the idea is suitable, good, for the schedule, for everything. If it's approved... Um, you prepare a budget, and then you start working within the budget. But to make a long story short, what is really great about MoMA and about working in the United States, but especially it's MoMA, I think, is that when you do an exhibition, you act as both the director and the producer of a movie, in a way, mm -hmm. and MoMA is the studio. You, know, you can, you can uh, think about it in these terms. And what is beautiful is that the whole museum works with you and for you for the exhibition. So all of a sudden... All of the departments come together and you explain to them what your concept is. You start making a design for the exhibition, the graphic design for the exhibition, the brochure, the website. You think of the press campaign. You think of what kind of an opening you want. And then, of course, you start the whole selection. And uh, the most exciting moment is when you do the installation, when you're really on the field, when you're on the floor, and you're actually installing. And at MoMA, we tend, well... We sometimes invite designers from the outside, but um, we do most of the design inside. And, and in my case, because I'm the curator of architecture and design, I kind of feel that I need to work with my crew. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, sure. I, so it's as, it's as if I were the first lady of the United States and I wore a French designer. You know, mm -hmm. and you have to wear an American designer and you have to use the MoMA crew. So it's uh, it's and it's a pleasure because they're really great. So usually with Jerry Neuner or the people that work with him, he's the head of the exhibition design, we make it happen. And it's many people together. It's the designers, it's the preparators and the art handlers, it's the curatorial assistants. I mean, it's really, I, I've never counted them, but um, there's at least more than 100 people working on a show at a time. Wow. Mm -mm. So it's... It's fantastic. You know, and if I wanted to go into detail, it would be maybe a little too long. But there's a magazine, for instance, print magazine, that followed the process of SAFE, at least in part. Yes. And, uh, and it was quite great that they decided to do that because, number one, um, explaining the process for a curator of architecture and design is always the goal. And number two, I was able to also point the finger towards some unsung heroes, you know, like the designers and all the people that are backstage that uh, usually the world doesn't know about. And, uh, and it truly is quite a fascinating story. Yeah, I forgot the catalog. There's also the catalog design. So it, it's a big production. Now, you, you mentioned before that you have to go in front of a committee to present the idea for a show. Have you ever had an idea rejected? Yeah, of and, course. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and what would you say of all, the, of all the exhibits that you've done in the... Uh, well, to give us an example of one that was rejected. I really No, really because you know what? In the future, it won't be rejected. I ah. haven't tried it out yet. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, <laughs> I never take no for an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the things I like about you. Um, how would you describe your curating style? 
my curating style is if I had to use one one word, I would say it's quite omnivorous <laughs> because usually um, I like to do thematic shows. I mean, I've done one or monographic show on Achille Castiglioni, and I've done some shows that were more about either a few designers, groups, etc. But my big shows tend to be thematic. I like to have an idea, and then I like to support the idea with examples. Of course, the idea comes from the from the design world, so there's this circle, you know, first are the objects, then is my idea, and then it goes back to the objects in a way. So um, what I do, let's take the example of SAFE. You know, SAFE was born as an exhibition about emergency equipment. Now, um, I understand that you proposed SAFE before 9-11. Yeah, exactly. Want to do we it proposed it in 2000. The, um, the idea came at the end of 2000. The proposal was in March of 2001, and it was called Emergency. Mm-hmm. And it was an exhibition about emergency equipment, that kind of design that really has to be completely thin and and lean and mean and perfectly working. You know, so it was emergency equipment, it was medical equipment, it was all sorts of objects that were really about emergency. And it was approved, and then 9-11 happened, and I didn't think of the exhibition for five days. It's very funny because somebody told me, what about your show five days after 9-11? And I turned around and said, what show? And all of a sudden, my heart sank. And uh, at first, I didn't even want to talk or hear or think of the show anymore. And then, you know, everybody who was in New York, also in the rest of the world, but especially in New York, we all went through this strange mass psychology process. You know, we were at home in disbelief for two months. Then we went out around Christmas. We started going out again. But, you know, we went from... Um, from disbelief to sadness to let's love our neighbor because we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it was just a very emotional moment. So the exhibition went from emergency to fear to safety. And in a way, if you think about it, emergency and safe are almost the same thing because it's looking at the glass as half full as opposed to half empty. But also, they're not the same thing because emergency is about response to something bad that already happened. Mm -hmm. And instead, safety is about not only preventing something bad from happening, but also keeping you warm, keeping you safe, you know, just making you feel like a full human being. Now, I I believe that I read in, and I believe it was Print Magazine, um, that you mentioned that there were various cultural elements that came into play when you were researching the concepts of safety. And I was wondering if you can share some of the cultural elements, the differences perhaps that you found in in the research that you were doing. Well, um, first of all, you know, there's a very, very different idea of safety in different parts of the world. It has to do, of course, with the geographic circumstances. It has to do with whether you live near a volcano or near a place where you have tidal waves. <laughs> it also has to do a lot with legal situations. You know, for instance, I think in the United States there's um, an idea of safety that is very much formalized by insurance companies and by um, a, cult- a culture of litigation. You know, very often the disclaimers and the notices that you see spread all over. You know, I, I made this experiment with some students. I asked them to document every time they saw a disclaimer in their day, and you have no idea how amazing it is. So um, it really depends. Instead, in other cultures, there's this sense of devil may care, and it's all about the responsibility of the individual. So it really changes a lot. In Scandinavia, for instance, just to go to very pragmatic uh, considerations about the environment, 
in Scandinavia, because they have a winter that is, for the most of the time, darkness, they make jewels in Finland. They make jewels that are made of reflective tape. Mm. So um, a necessity becomes a decoration, an adornment. You know? So it's, it's really very interesting. You know, people feel very differently about safety in many parts of the world. And in some parts of the world, safety the way we intend it here is something ridiculous. It's about surviving until the day after. Exactly, yes, mm-hmm. yes. I think some of the things that we feel like we you know, couldn't live without are, are probably are definitely very trivial in the grand scheme of things. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but we can talk a little bit more about that after our break. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is the curator, Paola Antonelli. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, part two of Adobe's Voices of Design series, a documentary that brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange. Today's topic is sustainability. Enjoy. The Challenge of Sustainable Design. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Sonora B. Digital Hive Ecological Design. Sustainability isn't just a great idea, but it's a design challenge. And so as designers, how can we use our skills and our thinking and our strategy to promote social change? Ron Radziner, Marmel Radziner Architects. I think that architecture, as a profession, that we've become too removed from the actual act of making, and we've become kind of just aesthetic consultants. And I think that our office is this attempt to bring that all back together, which is really how buildings used to be designed and built, and take responsibility for what we design. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Doug, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desk, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, businessamericaradio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. 
Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is the curator, Paola Antonelli. If you want to join our conversation, if you have a question for Paola, our lines are open, 1-866-472-5790. And uh, once again, we have a caller, uh, Isabel from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Paola. Hi, Hi. Isabel. I just have a question for you. Um, what Do you have any shows in the works for the near future that you can discuss? Yeah, it's next? not very well formed, but... <clears throat> I can tell you something about it. Right now it's called the state of design. And the reason why it's called so is because as a foreigner, I was so impressed the first time I heard State of the Union address. I thought it was so wonderfully arrogant and, you know, like intellectually powerful to just say, okay, here I am and I'm going to tell you how things are, that I decided to try and do it with design. And basically it's an attempt to show how architecture and design can really become very strong examples, not only in the visual arts, but also in policy making and politics. In other words, I'm trying to use example of great design, and great means they work well, they don't um, rape the environment, and they're beautiful, to show how the design process can be applied in a fruitful way also to politics and you know, social studies. So it's an attempt to link architecture and design to the rest of the world. Excellent. Thank wow. you. Very, very interesting. Thank you for calling, Isabel. Sure. Thank you. Um, Paula, I'd like to uh, talk about the show you did before SAFE, uh, WorkSphere's. And um, in reviewing the articles that came out after the opening, uh, you said, and this is a quote, uh, there are two subtexts to the way that we work. One, why do employers make us live this way? And the second is, how can we deal with technology? And did, did you find any surprising answers to those questions in putting together the show? Well, I found some answers. They were not too surprising, but I want to first make a little premise, which is interesting. The time that I, the time when I um, prepared the whole show, the world, our world, was going through a really strange moment because the show opened in 2001, and uh, it was prepared in 2000. That was the moment of the dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. So it was a moment in which we were all a little drunk. It was very discombobulating, and especially in the in the way we worked. Um, not only was there this sense that uh, the geek culture was was at that point the dominant the dominant culture. But also, the first wireless devices were really coming to fruition, and there was this sense of being able to work everywhere and in any situation, but at the same time, the plugs didn't work. So it was very funny. It was full of promise, full of frustrations, and uh, very strange altogether. So the reason why I did that show was to try and deal with this confusion, deal with um, a new lifestyle, people working at home and having a lot of children and uh, people working on the go. It was a very first world show, and I said it very clearly in the catalog and in the exhibition text. And, uh, um, you know, the reason why employers make us live that way, I now realized, is because it's a vicious circle. It's because buildings are made to be furnished inside and subdivided that way. In those years, at the time of the dot-com boom, there were a lot of very interesting experiments that were folded after so many of those companies folded. There was a company, a sub-company. Can I say brands? Can I name brands on, online? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, so Herman Miller had 
um, a, a brand called Red that was basically all furniture that was not only really great looking and very fresh, but also that could be assembled according to configurations that were not the usual cubicle configuration. Right. And it was meant to be really embraced by all these dot-com companies. And then what happened is that when the dot-com bust happened, red folded, and we went back to furniture that is for cubicles. So you start with the architecture, you go to the interior um, architecture, and then you get to the design. Everything is set that way. And since employers have to deal with cost per square foot, I mean, it is reality. It would be stupid not to think that way. That's how we end up. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I got a sense from reading the materials uh, after the show um, that you were somewhat um, skeptical about the the reasons, not necessarily the reasons, but just the output of this cubicle living and what that does to us as human beings. Um, why do you feel like we're still living this way? I think it's really for the reasons that I just mentioned to you. You know, architecture and design deal with very, very practical uh, situations and try to inject um, these practical situations with emotion, with uh, warmth, with everything that we need. I mean, architects and designers try to make life better for us, not worse. Mm-hmm. The problem is that um, when there's a whole system that's in place, what you can do is, um, as a manufacturer and as a designer, is respect the system and build within the system degrees of freedom. And that's truly what certain appendages of our desks, such as magnets, such as strange flower pots or whatever, you know, parts that you can customize are in reality. You know, ways for you to have a degree of freedom. There was a beautiful installation in the show by Naoto Fukasawa and IDO that was called Personal Skies. And, you know, I had asked six different design teams to solve some problems. And Naoto's problem was... Let's say you have a cubicle, like really a sad Dilbert-like cubicle. <laughs> what can you give your um, employee uh, in order for the person to survive? And, you know, everything had to be based in reality or in the near future, no science fiction. What he did is he used the new OLED screens that will become more, uh, more normal in the future that are LCD screens-like and that don't cost much and can be really big. And he made almost like a tent on top of the cubicle, and uh, on that tent, through the computer, you could project a sky. Mm-hmm. And it could be your favorite sky, or a friend could send you a sky from Vienna, let's say, or you could see the Aurora Borealis. So no matter what, even if you were at your cubicle, you could look up and see the sky. Beautiful, yeah. no? Yeah. That, yeah. Yes. So yes. that's what I've, designers I've do when they're good. It's magnificent. You know, another interesting quote that we found that you said was this, and, I, and it's not relate so much to design but more, more lifestyle. Um, a big problem is teaching people to take time off. It takes a lot of self-control, though. And I was really interested as, as somebody that's coming, living in the United States from a place as, as wonderful and, and design-oriented and lifestyle-oriented as, as Italy. Did you find that this was a particularly American thing, or do you feel like it was more pervasive worldwide? No, you know, um, Italy is not perfect at all. I mean, certainly from that viewpoint, you take more time off. But I think that there are, you know, America is more, especially New York, you know, tends to work harder than other parts of the world. But there is worse than, than the United States. And, you know, New York is good because there's so much that can, uh, that can really pull you out of your cocoon that you do take time off. 
But, you know, the reason why I was talking about it at that time was really interesting because that was the time when people tended to work at home. Mm-hmm. And all the theoreticians and consultants were saying, oh, my God, you shouldn't work at home. Or if you work at home, you should simulate a commute around the block. Or you, you should change your clothes when you're going to the place where your computer is. Or you should put your computer on a timer so after 9 o'clock at night it doesn't work. I mean, it was just absurd. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hela Jongerius, who is the designer to whom I had um, assigned this particular problem, said, that's all bull. You know, she said, people are able to control themselves and know when it's time for leisure and family and when it's time for work. So I'm going to instead collapse everything into the same thing. So it's a soft, cuddly computer that you can use to work or to play. You know, it was, it was about making life seamless and letting people take the responsibility for the way they use their time. So I think, um, I think, you know, really, I don't think the United States is worse than other places. Not at all. I think that especially New Yorkers know how to have fun. <laughs> um, Paola, we have an, another caller. We have Suzanne from New Jersey. Suzanne, uh, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Hi. Suzanne. Hi. Um, speaking of the differences between New York and the United States and Italy, I was wondering, I think that Italy is the most beautiful place I've ever been in my life, <laughs> and how you, you know, what you find the most difficult thing about living in the U.S. And as far as, like, I always felt that in Italy, like even the cracks in the pavement were beautiful, and I feel like New York is really like a concrete jungle. And wondering how you, you know, reconcile the differences of that where you come from and where you are. New York is beautiful. New York is the, the most wonderful place on earth. Now, of course, Italy is more um, platonically, canonically, and traditionally beautiful, and it's my country, and I love it so much. But you have no idea of how much better it is to live in New York. No comparison. Let me just give you a very, very simple example. I'm a woman. I wouldn't be able to be in the position that I'm in if I were back in Italy. And I don't mean to play an old tune. It really is the truth, and uh, it's something that is deeply rooted in the culture. It's a subtle condescension that does not go away. It's going to take a few generations. So that's just one. But then New York, I mean, people in New York are amazing. If you uh, make eye contact with anybody in the street, immediately afterwards follows a smile and a good morning or good afternoon. Try to do that in Milan. (laughs) I want to see you. (laughs) They look at you like you're crazy if you smile at each other. They're on their cell phones. (laughs) So it's it's a place of extraordinary beauty, wonderful food, incredible design sense. I'm so proud to be Italian. I'm so happy I grew up there. I'm so absolutely delighted I'm living in New York. Well, that's great. Thanks. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you for calling, Suzanne. Uh, Yay, New York. I feel the same way, actually. Um, Is there anything that you don't like about living in the U.S.? What is the thing that that you find to be most annoying or or most ungratifying? I don't think that I can say it, but uh, it has to do with politics. Okay. Well, you can say anything you want, Paola. I mean, first mm-hmm. of all, I, t- I tend to think that we're going to have the same point of view. Yeah. Um, but we are totally uncensored and politics are, are encouraged, but you certainly don't have to. No, I just have, um, I'm, I'm just a little bit scared about some basic freedoms. Yeah, I, I should let our listeners know that during the break, Paola and I were commenting, as much as we both love New York, I think we were both horrified to see how the newspapers are, especially in New York, are, are, are sort of spinning this, um, the, the latest development in, uh, in, our, in our war and, and the glee in which uh, this death is now being reported. And I just find the whole thing incredibly sad and just incredibly tragic. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. It is scary. 
Um, but we uh, have to take a break. <laughs> so when we come back, we will talk about curating. We will talk about design. We'll talk about politics. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely Paola Antonelli. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, part two of Adobe's Voices of Design series, a documentary that brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange. Today's topic is sustainability. Enjoy. The power of designers and their influence on sustainability. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here's Michael Schwab, Schwab Design. Design does influence people, and whether it's subconsciously or, or obviously, design does mean a lot, and, and, and it leaves a lasting impression. Paul Sappho, Institute for the Future. Designers are thought leaders, and they're action leaders. Designers have got to get this right, and they've got to define it right, because if they get it wrong, all their wrong ideas are going to be embedded in everything everybody else uses. Mark Willard. IDEO. Designers have been shaping culture for as long as there's been design. We have a huge opportunity, and I think before long it's going to be an obligation or a mandate to figure out how to solve these projects, these issues, these desires with sustainably relevant solutions. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality. Adopt transition into your personal power portfolio and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line business talk voice america business learn to thrive not just survive in business and careers unleash your full potential and greatness with the thrive factor unleashing your potential with tactical coaches and success masters hosts dory willer and eva gregory dory eva and their masters of thriving expert guests inform educate elucidate and inspire with leading edge information the thrive factor unleashing your potential with dory willer and eva gregory broadcast each thursday at 9 a.m pacific noon eastern on the voice america business channel the thrive Factor, success and inspiration at the click of a mouse. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.47 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in a very beautiful day in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the curator, Paula Antonelli. And we do have a caller on the line already for Paula, Stephen from Connecticut. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Thank you. Good afternoon. Hi, Stephen. Um, since we're talking about politics... <laughs> Anytime. Uh, I wanted to know why... What the issue was, you had mentioned that you both were concerned about the, the recent development in the war, and I'm assuming you were talking about Zarqawi? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I was I, we were talking about the the graphics on the New York Post and the sort of glee in which people are are celebrating this this death. Not that um, uh, you know whether it's a good death or a bad death is not really what I was I was talking about. I was really talking about the sort of the, the glee and the sort of rancor that is being you know this hysteria over it. That's really I find offensive. Well, I, I guess that they need something positive to grasp at. <laughs> yeah, well, so to, to what? Make people feel, you know, that we can be in the war for another year or two? It fosters hatred. I don't yes. want to foster hatred. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that clarification. Is that what you were calling? That's all I wanted to know. Oh, very good. Thank <laughs> you. That's the first political question we've got on Design Matters. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, okay, Paula, let's let's go to a, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, the show that you did, Humble Masterpieces, which yeah, was... Yeah, we go back to your kitchen now. <laughs> yes, one of my favorite shows that you curated. First of all, how Thank did you, you determine what was going to be in the show? I mean, that seems to have, to me, that it would be a very, very difficult thing to be able to to pick. Well, yes the... and no. I mean, yes, it was, but at, but at the same time, no. See, how, the show happened this way. We were in Queens while we were waiting to go back to Manhattan in the newly renewed building and there was a gallery a small square gallery in the middle of the collection galleries there was like you know uh, the the bad cards in the deck that you don't want to keep and you don't want to get and it was my turn uh, to get this card I had this gallery and I had to do a show I had very little money the gallery was small so I thought okay small objects (laughs) small objects from the collection then I said let's make them not really small but let's make them also affordable and really easy for people to grasp and mm-hmm. let's make them humble and then since that gallery was in the middle of all the Picassos and all the Van Goghs and so on and so forth that were masterpieces I decided to call my show Humble Masterpieces mm-hmm. and I started picking from the collection and you know there's the famous ball bearing that was on the catalog of the 1934 exhibition Machine Arc and then we had this little thing the little whisk to frost green tea in Japan I mean we had a lot of marvelous, wonderful, lovely objects already. So I picked 50 of them and then about 70 new objects that I wanted to add to the collection. And that's how the exhibition happened. Very simply, it all stemmed out of necessity. Small space, little money, and you need to make the best out of it. And that's what design is about, you know, making Mm -hmm. the best out of the constraints at hand. And the amazing thing about the show was the popular success. There was absolutely no uh, publicity because... That was not in in the plans. That was not in the budget. No publicity, no brochures. I had no money, so I did this gigantic... Remember the laminated cards that you used to have in museums, Mm -hmm. small museums? Well, I did it really giant so people couldn't feel it because I didn't have money for too many of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was all all a show that was really bare-bone, but it was so engaging for people because it was about the objects that they had in their drawers and in their bags that that it became word of mouth. Um, it was covered by the press everywhere. People were filling in this, this, all of these recommendation books. And I actually did a, a book afterwards yes, using, a yeah, book. using some of the recommendations by the public. And some of those things are fortune cookies, guitar picks, M&Ms. Yeah, well, the M&Ms were already in the collection, I think. Yeah. Let's see. From the, uh, It was very funny because the recommendation of the public were very much about national pride. Like all the Spaniards were recommending La Fregona, which is basically <clears throat> the floor mop. Uh, evidently, I didn't know it, but they invented the floor mop. And uh, all the Italians made pizza. 
But, uh, you know, so many objects that were recommended by the public. Actually, you're right, the fortune cookie was recommended by the public. But anyway, this little booklet also had the same success. You know, it's, uh, it's really quite gorgeous because it really cuts across age and cuts across cultural levels, if you ever want to speak of, a, of any such a thing as cultural level. But mm-hmm. it really speaks universally to as wide an audience as possible. Now, um, the amount of wire used to make slinkies was a very interesting thing that I learned from reading your book. How much? Um, how long is it? You know, it better the, than yeah, the amount of wire used to make slinkies since 1943 yeah. could wrap around the earth 126 times. There you go. I can't and remember all the figures anymore. This was many, many, many years ago. So I yes. think that. Um, it's, it's, it's probably way, way higher now, but um, in any case, I think it's, it's a marvelous book, uh, Humble Masterpieces, and a really wonderful show. Thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you think about what's happening in the, in the, in the world of design right now. Um, what do you think of the state of graphic design? Well, it's uh, both graphic design and industrial design, but you know, especially graphic design are in a moment of incredible fervor. Because there's so much going on, there are so many different applications. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the term graphic design should in a way be almost abandoned, even though it's always hard to find an alternative. I think communication design is, seems to be universally liked because truly what graphic designers do is they take whatever message at hand is at hand and they communicate it in the most appropriate and understandable and convenient way possible. So communication design could be a good way to put it. But just as I was telling the caller before, you know, the, the man from San Diego, it has so many different applications. It's about the design of interfaces ranging from cellular phones to automatic teller machines to billboards, um, you know, digital billboards in airports, all the way to posters, all the way to books, and then the Internet and websites. So you understand typefaces. Mine, it's... Um, it's incredible because it follows the amazing changes that are going on in the forms of communication right now. Yes, and if you just yes. think about uh, all the discussions that are going on about digital books, will paper disappear, will it not disappear, and how you uh, convert a magazine through to the Internet format. So you have the approach, the New York Times approach, you have a completely different way to go, or you have the New York Observer approach or the New Yorker approach, which is very reduced. So it's just, um, I would say that conceptually and theoretically, graphic designers are the ones that have the most work to do right now, and they are doing it. It's interesting because there's much more theory of graphic design than there is of industrial design. And that's a big change, I think, that there's a lot more about graphic design. I think for many, many years it was the other way around. I don't know. Um, Architecture has always had uh, rivers of words and thoughts poured over. It's always been considered a high art. Graphic design, because it involved some of the methods of the fine arts, be it uh, the prints and lithographies and so on and so forth, participated in this kind of allure. And instead, industrial design, since it was about crafts and handicrafts, etc., it's always been pretty much about just do it. Get your hands dirty and do it. I mean, there was, um, you know, the arts and crafts in the 19th century and so on and so forth, but I have to say, there's not too many history of design, of industrial design, that are really acceptable and, uh, and, and really good, and not that much theory. It's something that is very embryonic still.
Well, Pella, there's one more thing that I want to ask you before we close the show. Um, I don't know if you realize this, but in, in doing our research, we found that you're quoted in a quotation site. Oh, my God. Really? And the quote really intrigued me. It's a really beautiful, beautiful quote. And this is what you say. Designer's humility will change the world. And oh. I, I just think that that's gorgeous. And I just Thank wonder you. if you could tell us a little bit more about that before we well, have to close. Well, um, my idea is that designers to sit and think of how to make people's lives better. And uh, to do so, you have to kind of strip yourself of your ego for a moment and put yourself in other people's shoes. And that's right. the first act of um, really hum- real humanity. And it takes humility. Isn't that wonderful? Very noble. I think it's very noble. Well, we've come to the end of our show, and I just want to thank you so much for being on the show with me today and for letting the world hear some of your wonderful, wonderful thoughts. Thank you for Um, letting me be live from the Empire State Building. (laughs) (laughs) I'd also like to give a special thanks to our sponsors, Adobe and Nina Paper. Thank you very much for supporting Design Matters. I'd like to thank Ruben Colomb and Brian Travis at Voice America for making the broadcast happen, as well as Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. Joining me next week are Steve Sikora, Tom Wright, and Charlie Laser. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.